And welcome to the Small Business Sessions, powered by Zero. I'm Emma Jones of Enterprise Nation and very delighted to be joined here today by the founder of Eve Mattresses, Yash Bagniewski. Hi. Wonderful name, both wonderful name of your brand and wonderful name of your own persona, actually. But Yash, thank you for coming in. We hear that on the brand more than my personal <laughs> voice, so thank you. But you set up this company in 2015. I know you'd had a kind of a beginning selling mattresses before then, but surely lots of people have asked you this question. How did you come up with the idea for Eve Mattresses? Well, we had, as you said, had a, an earlier mattress online business um, and we were selling products through Groupon and actually trying to try various products uh, selling on the Groupon platform. And we were looking for things that had very high margins so that we could discount and also that was sourced locally so that we didn't have to hold any stock. And in 2011, we ran a mattress deal and it became the biggest ever Groupon deal. And then for three years, we, we sort of sold mattresses on the Groupon platform. The first deal sold 6,000 on day one. And so we sort of knew that the category was interesting and that it worked. But what we started to see being involved in it for a while was that there was very little branding and very commoditized sort of product offering. And, and, and over time running that previous company, we sort of were drawn towards the idea of building a brand. And my cousin who was doing our photography at the time was an ex-branding guy and who's running sports marketing at Channel 4. And he he came on as a co-founder and helped us sort of build something a little bit more emotional around the product than, than the sort of functionality part that we had focused on before. And I know Eve followed from that, but do you feel that Groupon deal, and I know you've spoken a lot about that first day of you kind of put the mattresses out there, 6,000 of them sold, and there's a lovely piece, I can't remember who you gave this quote to, where you were looking at kind of venture capital deals and you were like, oh my goodness, these companies have made no money and we've made like $2 million on day one of selling 6,000 mattresses. For you, was that an exercise in market research? So was it, let's put these mattresses out there, if they sell, then we'll start a business doing this properly? No, because we were trying a lot of things and we were actually, we had some very different startup ideas at the time and we were looking for ways to fund them because we didn't want to be so reliant on VCs. It's quite a, it can be a fantastic process, but it's quite an unpredictable process going out to investors. And so we didn't want to be too at the slave of it. And um, we were looking just at things that could be quite cash generative early on. And we tried a lot of things on, on Groupon, actually. And so I'd love to say that it was quite visionary, but it was much more opportunistic at that point. We, I think there was, some, there was some good thinking behind why we decided to do mattresses, but we didn't expect it to be, to be much bigger than any of the other products we had run. But it just, it just took off to such a scale that we kind of found ourselves in that category. And then then you start being able to, once you're in it, we started to be a little bit more sort of seeing where the category was going, but also, yeah, I guess just backwards understanding why it is that it works so well. So I think now we, we understand why it was a very good idea at the time. I think it was quite lucky. Which is why you interest me actually as an entrepreneur, because my advice to entrepreneurs tends to be find the thing that you feel a passion for, that you understand and build a business on the back of that. Whereas you found out almost where the gap in the market was. I'm not quite sure you had a passion for mattresses at that time. Not at all. And in, in a way, what you've just said is you've developed that passion since. But you go to show that if you can find a gap in the market, you don't necessarily have to be so passionate about the product to build a great business. I think your advice is very sound. I think what I had a passion for, though, was building businesses. I had done that for a while and I was looking for... I'd had a few startup attempts. We didn't take them too far, but we could sort of see they wouldn't work and you learn why. And so I, I was really just bedded to the idea of just focusing on something that has a high likelihood of working. Because what was interesting to me was branding and logistics and e-commerce and, and, and all of the stuff around building a sort of a web store, I guess, at scale. And so 
I think that was more important to me and something interested me more than having a particular passion for a product or service. And so I think you can do it a number of ways. I think, you know, I have since actually become really interested in sleep and and the category and actually in branding as well, because I see Eve as much as anything else, sort of exercise in branding and marketing. And that part has been really interesting. But you're right. My my core interest is not in the constitution or look of a, of a mattress, you know, which I think is quite a boring subject traditionally. Okay. And I love what you say. First of all, kind of in a way, life is too short. So find something that's got a high likelihood of success, which I, I do like that philosophy. So you mentioned the marketing and the branding. I know your cousin then kind of came in, as you say, he's kind of got background in that area. You're the kind of perfect duo to be running the business. But a big part of your marketing was in a way educating the audience on you know, the 100-day free trial, which I loved and has worked very well for you. But it is this kind of, we're a new brand, we're selling you a mattress, we want to educate you on the benefits of kind of good sleep. How have you gone about doing that? And in a way, how much has it cost to go about doing that? Well, we you're absolutely right. I think we, we wanted to sort of educate in a few ways. Firstly, we wanted to educate around the idea of that there's a better way to buy the product. And most people that you talk with about, you know, buying a mattress, the traditional experience is somewhat unpleasant, I would say. So, so firstly, we said, how could we make that better? But the second part, like you said, is around the benefits of sleep and, and why it's so important and why your mattress and your products feed into that so much. And we, you know, there's so many marketing channels we use now, so it's quite hard to just answer that but i think one thing so, so we use influencers a horrible word but you know influencers or people who who sort of are experts in these fields we use a lot of digital advertising we use a lot of content marketing but one of the things that was quite interesting especially with our first ever above the line campaign was a, a long copy ad in the london underground and so long, long copy gives you a sort of a canvas i think in which to, to talk more broadly like that because the message was like a story it was like those you see the whiskey ones sometimes on the cross tracks you know i think it's a Johnny Walker or something, mm. they have these really long About the history. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. so we use that sort of format to talk about just why sleep is important and also why it's better to buy online and all the benefits that come from the business model that we were sort of pioneering, I guess. And in terms of what it costs, we've raised £57 million to date. So we haven't spent all of it, but that's what we raised. So I guess in some sense, that's what we have. And we don't think we're going to need to, to raise any more. So that's, I guess, how much it costs. But that, that goes into internationalization and other products and things as well. But but that's the sort of the cost of, of getting our business to scale, we think. I love how you say we've raised 57 million so casually. It's strange, you know, because you do it through so many rounds. Like it's, it, to me, it, <laughs> it it's, just keeps it's, on adding up. <laughs> yeah, the first one we did was like 500 grand and that felt so much money at the time. You know, and when we got it, we were like, how do we make sure that we're sort of responsible with this? Because it's more money than we'd ever seen. And then, and then the next round was like two and a half million and that felt scary. And then the next one was 14. But because you you sort of crank it up a bit gradually. It never feels as overwhelming as you'd think. So now, I guess, when I think about it, that sounds pretty intimidating, but it happened over, well, still quite quick, over three years, but more importantly, over sort of, it was staggered in, in, the, in the amounts we raised. No, I understand that. And I do want to come back to how, how you've in kind of almost as an individual managed that kind of funding succession. But before that, just kind of the practicalities of the funding. So you raised 35 million through taking the company public. You mm -hmm. took the company public at a very early stage. In retrospect, was that a good thing to do? And in a way, what encouraged you to do that in the first place? Because it's quite an unusual decision for such young companies to take. So what was it that took you down that path? Well, the first thing was that our chairman had done it with another startup called Purple Bricks, also at quite an early stage of its development. And, and it had been a very successful IPO. So 
so that added to the fact that the previous three internet companies, Zalando, Rocket Internet, and Groupon that I had worked in all went public, made it feel like like a possibility. You know, like even something that was on the on the agenda, which I don't think it is for many startups. And and Paul's background with Purple Bricks put it on the agenda much earlier than than it would have otherwise. So so I think I guess that gave us the the idea of possibly doing it. We came to a point where the category was getting quite competitive just over a year ago, and we were looking at fundraising options and where we could raise most money. And it just felt there was more capital available to us at the time on the public markets. And and, and so that was the primary driver of it, really. There's other benefits of being a public company, and then there are some disadvantages as well. But but that was the primary driver. So we wanted to do a big funding round to really put a gap between us and our competitors. And and since then, we feel like we've moved quite far ahead just because it's such a big amount to raise in one go and gives you such a sort of uh, head start. So that that was the reason for it. And and to answer your question, whether it was a good or bad decision, as of today, I would say definitely. But I think listing is such a, a long-term play that we, we sort of have to see how how, how that decision looks over time, but because we're sort of very, very sort of long-term focused, and because we don't need to to raise any subsequent money, really, we we hope that we think that whatever happens in the public markets as a business, we'll be able to ride that out and um, and and sort of and not be too affected by it. So, so I think I think it was the right decision, but but we'll know, I guess, for sure in a few years' time. It must be a lovely feeling to know that you don't have to raise again. I remember reading something um, a couple of years ago that Twitter has got enough money in their bank account to keep them going for like the next 200 years. Wow! And I thought as a founder, it just must be, I don't know what even gets you off in the morning if you just think we've got enough money for the next 200 years. But of course, I know you have to keep on making sales. And how through the kind of IPO, the 57 million kind of fundraisers, you say that's kind of gone through phases. How have you had to change as kind of the leader of the business? It's you and your cousin that kind of lead it. You've each got different roles. Have you felt that you've had to change or are you still, not sounding too deep a question, but are you still the entrepreneur that you were when you started? I think so. I think the business, what what happens is as investors put in more money, they want more checks and balances, I think, around how that money is being spent. So you find that the sort of the core management team gets beefed up, the board gets beefed up. There are more checks and balances in play because in the early days, really, we people invested in us and we could have done what we wanted with that money, you know. And it was it's sort of it was just me and a few of my buddies. But as it's got bigger, we have now a CFO, a proper board, you know, uh, much stricter accountancy practices, and so so I think that part of the business has changed. But I don't think that myself and my cousin have changed too much. We're still pretty pretty much as we were obviously everything's just a bit bigger and a bit you know more grown up and professional but but it just feels like growth rather than being constricted I think so so no we haven't changed too much I don't think and do you feel that it's still an entrepreneurial company at its heart so as you say the rigor financial rigor has to be put in place but that hasn't stopped your entrepreneurial spirit of understanding the customer knowing what they want going international etc I don't think so I think being bigger has some things that get constricted and some things where you get more freedom. Having more money allows you to test more things out. Having a bigger team and better people and more experience around the table also takes you in directions you wouldn't have gone in otherwise. But of course, it, sort of going back to that thing, there's like things have to go through a bit more of a process now, and rightly so, because I think the way we had ran it three years ago just wouldn't work right now. It would be dysfunctional. So so you sort of adapt as a business, but I think it's really important. You can still sort of have entrepreneurial projects within the bigger structure. So whether that's around product launches or international launches or 
the way we sort of do certain processes. I think we're always trying to be innovative at a, at a sort of more granular level. And that, I think, feeds into the culture much more than anything else. So, so I think it's still a very entrepreneurial culture. Nice. And you talk about growth. Something interesting that I saw is you start out with mattresses, but you're looking to kind of expand into the kind of wider sleep category. Is that the kind of key thrust of the growth plans over the next couple of years? Um, one of them. So we have three, three sort of core growth or four really growth drivers that we talk about. One is internationalization. The second one is new product development. And, and then the, the third is about going into stores. And then the fourth one is around just sort of building the brand and investing in marketing and, and sort of in that side of things. So, so absolutely, the, the, the new products are a huge part. Today, we sell more non-mattress products than actual mattresses. In terms of units, although mattresses still make up about 80% of the revenue because obviously the ticket price is higher. Um, but we see that as a real indicator that we're building a sleep brand rather than a mattress business, you know. And I think that's really important because because the category is so commoditized and because historically brands or mattress companies have talked about foam and density and technology and composition. It hasn't really given them the license to go into to more lifestyle products like sheets or pajamas or more sort of decorative items. And we've been doing that quite successfully. So I think it's it's quite it's another part of the sort of disruptive approach that we've taken it by investing very heavily in the brand early on. Nice. And just on the international as kind of a final question, how do you view um, international expansion? Do you feel, and again, lots of entrepreneurs who we speak to on this, say that international is very similar to trading in the UK, but just with a 10% nuance that's different, which is the language, the culture, shipping. Do you feel the same? So when you're selling into Germany, the US, Asia, it's a similar kind of thing. You're selling the same product. You're selling it to a slightly different audience. It's similar. I think that the the one of the bits of magic is trying to figure out how you sort of uh, customize the, the the product and brand and experience enough to the market without losing uh, lo- losing yourself within that. You know, if, if customers have different preferences on products in different markets, but still keeping the brand consistent. I think. Um, yeah, so, so I agree. I, I think it's not that the hardest thing for me about internationalization is with the UK business, I'm very, very close to everything that's going on. I can go on social media and see what customers are saying. I can speak with customers myself. I can look at the website and just read through the copy. And so I feel very, very in control of that. Well, not control is the wrong word, but just very on top of that business and very connected to it. Whereas with the other markets, I'm only interacting with them in numbers really so people are saying this is your conversion rate this is and you have to sort of try and understand why that's happening and you can use a bit less of your intuition on it because you just don't you don't understand what's happening and you don't understand the market in the same way so you're much more reliant on the people you hire but um but but other than that you're right the, the markets don't change drastically from country to country is it true that when you do customer support you're called anna yeah, I was for a while actually, <laughs> because especially when we were smaller, I thought it would feel weird that the that the CEO would be on CF customer services. We thought that would make us seem like not a very serious outfit. So I called myself Anna, and then started getting people sending really weird and creepy messages to me the whole time. So I changed back to Yash. <laughs> That's what happens when you run a mattresses company, but exactly. you run it beautifully well. Yash, Anna, uh, whichever description in which you would like to be referred to today. Thank you so much for coming in. It's a beautiful business. I hope that lots of entrepreneurs buy your mattresses and other sleep products, so because I. if there's one category of people that need good sleep, in fact, everyone needs good sleep, but of course, entrepreneurs need it to keep driving their businesses. You're doing a great job of driving yours. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank Thanks you, Yash. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Small Business Sessions with Zero. Thanks also to Podraffy for their support in production and editing. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes and please do leave a review.